Well, it is a blessing for you to be with us this morning, for me to be with you. Uh, it's a joy to gather together as a church family. And uh, we've been working through the book of Romans, and so uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 13. And Romans chapter 13, we've been talking, uh, we began last week in this section, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. And I know as we wrestled through those verses, and particularly the first verses of verses 1 and 2, probably brought up a lot of questions in your mind. And so what I want to do is just continue to consider those questions from this passage and to do so from the Word. Now, uh, as we saw last week, if you just look with me at Romans 13, 1 and 2, notice what Paul says. It's very interesting. He gives one command, and then he gives six verses to defend that command. But prior to that, he's been giving commands, but he doesn't give any defense of the commands. But here, Paul gives one command and then six verses to defend it. And the reason for that is that what Paul says here is controversial. It's always been controversial. It always will be controversial. He says, verse 13, Verse 1, I mean, chapter 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And last week we took that sentence apart and looked at exactly what that means and the basis for that. He says, there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. What we did was look through that text just phrase by phrase last week, and what I want to do is sort of dial that down even a little bit more this week and understand a little bit more about what's happening there. Last week we talked about obedience to government, that principal reality of our obedience, our obligation to obey the government. And what we talked about last week was that God is sovereign over governments, and therefore it is our responsibility to submit ourselves to them. And that's crucial to understanding why we obey. Why do we obey the government? Well, because God is in control of all governments, and therefore we must obey the government because ultimately it comes from God. God's sovereignty is the root cause of our obedience. But what I want to do is dig a little deeper this morning, and not only that we want to obey, but I want to look at some of the other issues that might have cropped up in your heart about disobedience, some of the implications that might flow from that. And so look with me at point one this morning, categories of submission, categories of submission. Now, we talked last week about when government calls you to disobey God that you must refuse, right? Because ultimately our obedience to government is obedience to God, and when, God got, when government calls us to disobey God, then we must refuse to obey government at those times. Uh, Peter says in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So we talked about how issues like the one-child policy in China would be an issue where you would just refuse to obey, or if the government were to command the church to not preach the gospel, we would continue to preach the gospel because we're called to do that by God. But in our day, I think those issues are more nuanced than that. In America, they're more nuanced, and so we want to look a little more carefully at a couple of those issues. The first one I would look at is under point A, a freedom to appeal, a freedom to appeal. Now, relating to situations where we believe the authorities are violating our rights, what do we do? This is an important question, right? This is an important question. For example, consider a situation where a duly vested authority, a police officer, for example, or, or a government agent, is violating the rights that are afforded to us under the legal system that we live in. In other words, there's a violation of the Constitution here in, the, in America. It's a very tricky situation, isn't it? It's actually very nuanced how we think through that, because we have the law, which is coded, it's written in the Constitution, and then we have our obligation to obey the one who is the governing authority, who is this person who has been vested by the people to carry that authority. So who do we obey? Do we obey the law or do we obey authority? Now again, this is complex, and 
part of what makes it so complex is that it could be just a matter of interpretation, right? This is a very complex idea. The authority may be seeing the law with one interpretation, and we may be seeing the law with another interpretation. So who wins? Who gets to carry out their authority? Long story short, I would suggest to you that our responsibility as Christians is to submit to the authority and to appeal to whatever legal authority that there is in a legal and respectful way. In other words, we don't defame the name of God by open rebellion. What do we do? We submit and then we seek to appeal in a legal way. But why do we do that? Well, I want to show you an example of this. Turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Paul shows us a perfect example of this exact thing taking place. It's very interesting, actually. In this text, Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and he asks the leader of the band of soldiers, Roman soldiers there, if he can address the crowd. And so he wants to address the crowd and speak to them, and he does so. And then what happens at the end of his speech is that there starts to be a tumult because he, he's essentially preaching the gospel, and they don't like to hear it. And in verse 22, he says, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their hands, this is so interesting, their voices, I'm sorry, and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks and, toss, and tossing dust into the air. So there's this crowd that wants to kill Paul now. They're saying, we're going to kill him, we're going to put him to death. So the commander of the Roman soldiers ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Okay, so you're going to protect this guy who seems to be an insurrectionist. You bring him into the barracks, and what happens? stating that he should be examined by scourging so that they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So in the ancient world, in the Roman world, if you wanted to ask somebody questions and you were an authority, you had the right to scourge them to get them to tell you the truth, to whip them. So there was a freedom in the Roman world to do this. It's actually an amazing thing. Verse 25, when they stretched him out with thongs, in other words, they tie his hands up so that they can whip his back, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful, is it legal, is it right, right? Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? That's an amazing sentence. They're tying him up, right? As they're tying him up, he says, is this legal? Right, he asked the question. And what happens? Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? (laughs) That's a great sentence. What are you doing, right? This man is a Roman. You can't do this. You can't scourge him like this. It was against the law to scourge a Roman in this way for interrogation. Verse 27, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. You're not allowed to do that to a Roman citizen. You had to to give him his legal rights. Now, this is fascinating. What's happening here? Why is this so interesting? Well, Paul could have exercised his legal right. Why was the centurion so afraid of Paul at this moment? What had happened? The centurion was afraid because Paul's rights had been violated by the centurion. What he legally should have had was taken from him by this man. 
And what he knows is if Paul reports him and says, I was a Roman citizen, I was put in chains, I was about to be scourged until I exercised my legal rights, he would have been in trouble. In fact, to scourge a Roman citizen was a capital offense without there being a conviction. And so you have this man who's now terrified of Paul. But what does Paul do? What does Paul do with this? He doesn't cry out for a revolt, right? He doesn't, he doesn't try to lead an insurrection against this guy. What does he do? He simply states the law and says, this is what the law says. It's not right to do this. He's not fighting the man. He's not like dial an attorney. He doesn't do any of those things, right? He just humbly and quietly submits himself to his authority and says, you know the law protects me. And the man lets him go, right? He actually upholds the law in this situation. The law was about to be violated by a legal authority, and this man upholds the law to protect Paul. But we have the opposite happen in Acts 16, right? Paul was beaten in Philippi. He was beaten, and presumably he probably said something of the same sort, and then the crowd and in the chaos, they beat him anyway and interrogated him. And you remember that story. His appeal was ignored, and yet Paul still submitted himself. And even when they said, you should be released. He says, come down and get us out yourself. We're Roman citizens. You've beaten us against the law. And the, man, the, the magistrates come to the jail and they come to him and say, please leave town. And Paul, instead of leaving a, leading a, resurrect, a revolt or an insurrection, what does he do? He submits himself again and just leaves and obeys. So we have a picture of both, right? We have a picture of a legal appeal that's heard and we have a picture of a legal, legal appeal that's not heard. But in both cases, Paul is submissive. He's submissive. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't cry for revolution. He doesn't fight back. What does he do? He just quietly submits to the injustice and appeals to what is legally right. If the appeal was ignored, it didn't change Paul's response. And that should be the way that we should respond when these kinds of circumstances happen. We should submit for the sake of the honor of Christ in that moment, and then we have freedom to legally appeal according to the categories of law that our government has allowed for us. So that's one implication. There's a whole other category of things that I think we need to think about, and this is point B, conscience issues. Conscience issues. And we said you can't disobey God by obeying government, but what about laws that come from the government that call us to do something that isn't specifically commanded, condemned as sin in the Bible? A law that would call you to do something, but the Bible doesn't speak to that thing. What should we do in that situation? Something that might bother our conscience. Now, we haven't covered it yet, but I want you to turn with me to Romans 14. We'll, we'll be here eventually. Romans 14, and look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says this, he says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is what? Sin. Okay, what's Paul saying here? What Paul is telling us here is that if there's something that is not of faith in us, it's sinful. The Bible may or may not condemn that thing, but if you're not doing it with the freedom of faith in your heart and doing it with thankfulness to God, it could be sin. That's a conscience issue. It's a conscience issue that could result in sin for us. And we know conscience issues already, right? For example, for example uh, drinking alcohol. Some people would say that drinking alcohol is not a sin. For other people, drinking alcohol is a sin. 
Neither is right, and and both are right at the same time. All of that is true, right? For some people, it is sinful to do that, but the Bible doesn't condemn it, and so that's a conscience issue. People, each individual Christian makes a choice to obey their conscience in that thing, and to to one person, it would be a sin if they were to drink, and to another, it's not. But to the one who sees that as a sin, they should absolutely not do it. They should never do it. In fact, to do it would be to sin against God. And so they should absolutely avoid it, knowing that it would be sin. They should listen to their conscience. So those are conscience issues. There's also things that are preference issues, but that aren't actually a conscience issue. These are preferences, right? We can sometimes conflate these things together, preferences and conscience. We can mix them together. Preferences, even very strong preferences, are not actually conscience issues. This is important. Even very strong preferences are not conscience issues. For example, I have a preference against mushrooms, right? You all know this. But eating a mushroom is certainly not a sin, right? And were I to eat a mushroom, I would not be sinning in doing that. It's not wrong to do that. You might have a strong preference that we not start church at 4 a.m. I would understand that. But to start church at 4 a.m. is not necessarily sinful, right? Those are preferences. We have strong preferences for or against various things. A conscience issue is something that's not forbidden in the Bible, but would be a sin for a person to do because of the way their faith is understanding God's calling on them. But a preference issue is not that. A preference issue is something which we would prefer to not do or prefer to do, but we are not bound by our conscience to do it. And so let me ask you this. Is it okay to disobey the government on the grounds of conscience? And I would say, absolutely. You have the freedom to disobey the government on the grounds of conscience. But here's what I would say. Be sure it's truly a conscience issue. Be sure it's truly a conscience issue. In other words, would it be a sin for you before God to do or to not do the thing that the government is telling you to do? If it would be a sin for you to do it, then you can disobey the government. In fact, you must disobey the government at that level. Even if someone were to come to you and put a gun to your head and say, do this thing, if it's, a con- if it's truly a conscience issue, you would say, shoot me, I would rather die than sin against God, I will not do that thing. That is what a conscience issue truly is, because sin is much worse than death to the Christian, isn't it? I mean, to illustrate the point, you know during times of war, there are people who are called conscientious objectors. What's a conscientious objector? It's a person who believes that killing another person during wartime would be a sin. They believe that it would be wrong for them to go and do that. They object on the basis of conscience, and a true conscientious objector, even if they're shot for treason for not fighting, is willing to die for the sake of that conscience issue. On the other side, what if you really despise wearing a seatbelt, right? It bothers you, chafes your neck, makes you feel uncomfortable. You've read articles where people were thrown from a car and they survived because they didn't have their seatbelt on, so you think it's safer for me to not wear a seatbelt. You have all sorts of excuses why you shouldn't wear a seatbelt, and deep down it's just bothersome to have one on. Can you choose to not wear your seatbelt in the name of conscience? No. You can't. That's a preference. So before we disobey the government on the grounds of conscience, we need to analyze the issue carefully, very carefully. Is it a true conscience issue? Is it truly something where if someone put a gun to your head and say, do this or I will kill you, you would say, happily kill me. It is sin for me to do this thing. Or would you say, all right, all right, we don't need to get that excited about it. And you would buckle. If you would, it is not a conscience issue, it's a preference. 
And if it is a preference, we need to submit to the government. But if it is a conscience issue, we should never uh, submit to the government, even if it costs us our life. And so we have to obey our governing authorities. We must submit to them unless one of these caveats is met. But I want to dig a little deeper into this concept of submission, okay? I don't think Paul is simply calling us to external obedience. Just do it on the outside, right? There's something more than that. And the reason for that is the language he uses in Romans chapter 13, and this is point two on your outline, the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter. Now, throughout the, Old Te- throughout the New Testament, really throughout the Bible, obedience for the Christian flows out of the heart. Uh, God wants our hearts first, doesn't he? We know this, right? What are the first and second commandments? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience to God always flows from the heart first and outward, always. Every single act of obedience must come from a heart of love for God or love for others. Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All obedience must come out of us first. It can't just be an external veneer. And if we say we can obey, but our heart can be not in obedience or compliance, that is just externalism. That's a lie. That's hypocrisy. And we see this even in the concept of submission itself. If you look at point A with me, heart respect. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say every person must obey the governing authorities. He says every person must be in subjection to the governing authorities. The language that he uses is intentionally internal first. We talked last week about how that word is a military term. It means to line up under one who is an authority over us, to fall in line, so to speak. True submission comes out of the heart. It's a heart issue more than it is an external issue. And that's why the writers of Scripture demand this kind of submission, don't they? The writers of Scripture demand heart submission. Christianity is a profoundly submissive religion. Paul uses this word to describe the relationship of a husband and wife, Ephesians 5, 24 and Colossians 3, 18. In fact, turn to Ephesians with me, Ephesians 5. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 5. It's interesting what Paul does here. Now, in this context, he's describing the relationship between a husband and a wife, and he's comparing it to the relationship between Christ and the church. In verse 24, look what he says. Just as the church is subject, that's the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 11, uh, 13, 1. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, the, the subjection, the submission of a wife to a husband is compared to the submission of the church to Christ. And we would never say, as long as she's externally obedient, then it's fine, right? That, that, that would totally negate the whole point of the church in Christ. We obey from a heart of love. It isn't just about external obedience. There is something much more to that. In fact, if you just look down in verse 33 of Ephesians 5, look what he says. He says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she what? Respects her husband. Paul takes this idea of submission and he lays it in with the idea of respect, that there's respect for that authority. It's also used in 1 Peter 3. Turn over there with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is talking about the submission of the angels to Jesus. And he uses that exact same word. It's amazing that this is what he's really after when he speaks this, these words in Romans 13.1. And 
in chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, put into submission to him. He is in authority, and the angels are submissive to Christ, aren't they? Not just external obedience. They're not chafing under his authority. They're submissive to him. And so the word is more comprehensive than just external obedience for the sake of what's on the outside. It's more internal. And Peter even points that out. Just flip backwards with me, just to 1 Peter chapter 2. John read this for us this morning. It's interesting. Peter, in verse 13, tells us, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one who is in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. But look down in verse 17. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, honor the emperor. So submission to Peter in verse 13 is honor for the king in verse 17. That's what he's describing. And what is honor? Honor is the exact same word that's used of children and parents. Children, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. What is that? That's respect, isn't it? It's just respect. We understand that word. We understand the word respect. What does it mean to respect somebody? We know the difference, right? We know the difference between respect and disrespect. We know that difference. We feel it, I think, even culturally. If someone is disrespectful, it's not hard for us to discern disrespect in someone's attitude or behavior. Even with our kids, disrespect, even subtle disrespect, right? Like a little scoff or an eye roll. You know they're being disrespectful. It reveals their heart, doesn't it? You see that in the child. That's exactly what Peter is talking about when he says to honor the king, to respect them from the heart. So let me just ask you this. True submission is heart respect. So are you respectful of the men and women who are in charge of our nation? Do you respect them, not only on the outside, but do you respect them from the heart? Not because they are respectable, but because they are placed there by God. Do you respect them? Are you respectful of state leaders? Do you speak about them in respectful ways? Or are you quick to scoff at leaders who are on the opposite side of your beliefs? Do you mock them? Do you insult them? Listen, this isn't a small thing. That's a huge issue. Because when we do those things, we are violating what God has called us to do. We're sinning against a holy God who is in charge of our government. And our disrespectful attitudes toward politicians who we disagree with are a terrible witness of Christ, aren't they? And this is point B here, defaming Jesus. The problem with being dishonoring to authorities, the first problem is that we're sinning against God, but the second problem is that there's a side effect to that. Rebellion against authority is a defamation of Christ and the gospel, disrespect of authorities, when we act insultingly over God's choice of us, when we insult them, the world takes note of that. And they point out the fallacy in our thinking. They see it. You claim to be a Christian. You claim that God is sovereign, but you spend all of your time on social media mocking the one who's sovereignly been put over you. You're a fake. It defames the name of Christ, and it defames the gospel. And Peter says that, doesn't he? Look up in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2 again. 
Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's to the king or as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Then look at verse 15. Pay attention to this. This is so important. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's an amazing verse. What's he saying there? What's he saying? The word foolish here, it literally means in Greek, those who don't understand. They don't have understanding. What are, what are f- these people not understanding? What don't they understand? They don't understand that all authority is from who? God. They don't understand that God is sovereign. And when we submit, what does Peter say will happen? He says, we will silence the ignorance of those who don't understand. We silence them not by revolution. We silence them by submission and respect. How? Because we are saying exactly what Jesus said to Pilate, aren't we? You have no authority except what's been given to you by God. But I will submit to it because God is sovereign over you. That silences the ignorance of those who don't understand. And in fact, look down in verse 21. This is exactly what Jesus did. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The example of Christ was that he submitted in silence to unrighteous authority, and by doing so, he silenced Pilate, didn't he? Remember, Pilate threatens him. He says, you don't answer me. Don't you know I have the ability to kill you? And Jesus looks at him and says, you have zero authority besides what God has given you. And what does Pilate do? He doesn't say, well, I'm going to get you more now. No, what does Pilate do? He's terrified. Why is Pilate so afraid? He's afraid because this guy doesn't fear him at all. You can take my life, Jesus says. I don't care. Take my life. You have no authority except the authority that's been given to you by God. I'm in submission to God, not to you. That silenced Pilate. He he goes out to the crowd and he says, "He's, he's innocent. He's innocent. You should not kill this guy. He washes his hands. Why does Pilate wash his hands? Because he knows he's dealing with one who trusts God. He knows it. And he knows that Jesus is righteous. The same is true of us. When we are righteous in our response to authority, whether it's good authority or bad authority, it silences the ignorance of those who don't understand. It honors the gospel of Christ. And I want to show you that even more specifically. Look back in Titus. Flip backwards to Titus. Titus chapter 2. In verse 16 of Titus chapter 1, Paul describes unbelievers. These are unbelievers. It's fascinating. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In other words, they're saying, I know God, I'm submitted to God, but by their deeds they're denying that they actually know God. They're disobedient. And then Paul says, you be different. Titus, teach the Cretans to be different than that. Look what he says here. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he describes what older men should be like and what older women should be like and how they should teach. And if you look down at the bottom of verse 5, what does he say? He says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Be respectful, be obedient, be submissive. Why? So that the word of God is not dishonored among you. And then if you look at verse 6, he says, Likewise, urge younger men to be sensible, to sh- to, in all things, to show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Why? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. 
And then he talks about bond slaves. He says, let them be in subjection to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? What does it say? Verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What does submission do? It adorns the gospel, doesn't it? And in the exact same vein, look at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Why? Because it adorns the gospel. It, it highlights the beauty of our trust and, and faith in a God who saves us. And he explains that, starting in verse 3 down to verse 8. So this is what God would call us to do. This is what he wants us to do, to adorn the gospel with our submission. And yet when we rebel, when we revolt, when we are disrespectful against those who God has put over us, listen, what does it do? It defames Christ. It defames him. Heart resistance and disrespect defames Jesus. And that's why it's so crucial for us to understand the depth of what Paul is saying in Romans 13.1. He is calling us to heart submission. Not just external obedience, but heart submission and respect to those who are over us. God's glory is at stake in how we respond to government. Listen, friends, this is so important. God's glory is at stake in how we respond to government, how we speak on social media, how we talk to other people. God's glory is at stake when we do those things because we are disrespecting authorities that God has given us. We are effectively rejecting the authority that God has put over us in love and, and our responsibility is to honor God instead of defaming Him. And when we reject that, we defame Him. So how do we get our hearts into a place where we can truly submit for the glory of God? That's the question. Right? How do we get there? Because this is tough. I mean, be honest, right? This is hard. Politics affects our daily life, doesn't it? Taxes go up. No one likes that, right? Freedoms are lost. Laws restrict us. Morality, things that we know are right and wrong, gets totally upended. And what do we do in those situations? We're watching all of that happen in front of us. We're seeing all of it taking place. And I think it's easy for us to understand why people get angry. I understand that. But we can't do that. We cannot follow after the world and do that. Why? For the sake of Christ and His name, we need to be respectful. So how do we guard our hearts from this kind of sin? And this is point three, trusting sovereign love. The most basic answer, the most core answer of this is just faith. The way to not walk in sin is to walk by faith. The question, what faith in what? Uh, that's simplistic. We need to be complex with this. What is the faith that God would have us to have? And this is point A, the one who declares it all. Look back in Isaiah 48 with me. This is fascinating. Isaiah 48. I'm sorry, 46. <laughs> Should be on the slide. Yeah, Isaiah 46. This section of Isaiah is fascinating because 
Israel has been told that they're going to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. So you have God who puts Nebuchadnezzar up. We know that from Daniel chapter 2. In fact, Daniel, Daniel says God raises kings, and then Nebuchadnezzar confesses that God raises kings. So Nebuchadnezzar was put into place by God for the sake of bringing Israel into captivity. And God promises through Isaiah, before they're ever taken into captivity, that he would raise up another king after Cyrus to release them, after Nebuchadnezzar, to release them, his name would be Cyrus, that God would put Cyrus on the throne so that the the nation of Israel could be brought back to their land. And if you look at verses 8 through 10, look what he says. He says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And this phrase is crazy, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God says, I know the end from the beginning. I will accomplish what needs to happen. Don't worry. Be assured. Be confident of this. I'm in control. I declared the end before the beginning ever started. I'm in control of everything. You don't need to be afraid. And then he says, it's amazing, verse 11, he says, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. He says, I will bring Cyrus onto Nebuchadnezzar. He will overthrow the Babylonian empire and establish the Persian kingdom so that the nation of Israel will be sent back to their land. That's amazing. That's amazing. Before any of this ever happens, God says, here's what's going to happen. A king is going to rise up. He's going to take you into captivity. I'm going to rise up another king, and he's going to take you out of captivity. And all of this is according to my perfect plan. Cyrus wasn't a good guy, right? He wasn't a particularly righteous ruler. He just did did God's bidding in regard to Israel. He did what he was supposed to. He did exactly what God had for him in that moment. But so did Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar took them into captivity, he had a purpose. God had a purpose for it. And when God released them through Cyrus, he had a purpose for it. And all of it was determined by God. So what's the point? God orders the end from the beginning. What do we have to believe? We have to believe that, don't we? We have to have faith in the reality that God knows the end from the beginning and he sees all of it in one shot. He knows all of history. He knows all of it. We may not be able to see why something is happening now or even what purpose God might have for what's happening now because of a certain political system that's coming into place or not coming into place. And I think in many ways we often can't see those things until the history books are written, right? We can't see what's happening in our day. But what we do see is that God is in control. He's in control. It's not by accident. He's in control of all of those things from the, end, from the beginning to the end and he is carrying out his purposes for his glory. God is in control. And in the end, when we die, or maybe before then, we'll see that. It'll be made clear to us. And our job, therefore, is when we can't see it, to rest in faith that it's true. To rest in faith in the reality of God's sovereignty over us. And then from the heart to submit ourselves to the government that God has sovereignly placed over us so that we're respectful. You might say, well, what about all those things that I lose when I submit? I lose money and taxes. I lose freedoms. What about all the negative outcomes? This is the end of Western civilization as we know it. Look at point B, loss as gain. Listen, at the end of the day, submission to human authorities for the honor and glory of Christ is a value judgment, isn't it? 
That's really what we're doing when we submit to human authorities that God's placed over us. When we consider everything that we might lose in being submissive, and when we think about all the things that are at stake, it can be hard to think about Marxist takeovers and loss of personal freedoms, the collapse of the U.S. economy, all the rhetoric we hear all the time. When we hear that, it's hard to say, well, God is in control. But those things, this is important, all those things are infinitely less important than Jesus. Infinitely less important than Jesus. The United States of America, the U.S. economy, is infinitely less important than Jesus. Tax code is infinitely less important than Christ. Jesus is the most valuable thing in the universe. And every nation ultimately pales in comparison to the value of Christ. He is the single most important thing. And therefore, if by losing everything we make him look glorious, we gain, don't we? We gain. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 with me. This is Paul's heart. Philippians chapter 3, he describes how he was a righteous Jew in verses 1 through 6. And then in verse 7, he says this. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, all the things that were gained to him, he says, I, they're lost to me. The nation of Israel, everything, all of it is lost to me. Why? Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He says suffered. It hurt him to lose everything, but he counts them but what? Rubbish. They're trash to him so that he may be found that he may gain Christ. What does he say? He says that I may gain Christ, everything else is lost to me. Everything else is a zero on the value judgment scale. When we look out in the world, I think we don't often feel this way, do we? You know, we look out in the world and, and then we look at everything that we can lose and we say, no, don't take that from me. That's mine. Let me have my Christianity and let me have my comfort at the same time and I'm happy. And for many years, that's been allowed here. And it's been glorious. It's been nice. But a time may come when God calls us to choose. Will you have submission and respect and honor Christ? Or will you refuse to lose? And I would tell you, when that day comes, we need to be prepared to do what's right. And to honor Christ. If we're not prepared to do that, we will stumble. So here's the question. What made Paul ready to count everything as loss for the value of Christ? Just look at verse 9. It's amazing. It says, That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the works of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What made Paul ready to give up his life for Christ, to give up his nationality for Christ, to give up everything for Jesus, all of his family, everything? It was okay. Why? Because he understood it wasn't his righteousness. It wasn't him, in fact. It was Christ's righteousness that was granted to him. His eternal life was anchored in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, you can take everything else from me. Give me Christ. He says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and listen to this, 
the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What made Paul willing to give up everything for Christ? It was the gospel. It was his salvation. It was the knowledge that Jesus loved him and that he gave himself up for him. Paul saw the beauty and the glory of Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and he loved and cherished Jesus because of it. He loved Jesus. And as he did that, his grip on the world loosened, didn't it? It didn't matter to him anymore. He could let go of everything because he had Christ. It was okay. And he clung more and more tightly to Jesus so that when the king in charge, when the president of Rome, so to speak, said, cut his head off, what does Paul say? For me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. It's gain. He said to be with Christ is very much better. How do we get our hearts submitted from the heart in respect to the authorities that God has put over us? This isn't just for the government, right? This is for every authority structure, for parents, right? For parents, for church leadership, all those things, all of that authority structure. How do we get our hearts under that? And the answer is very simple. By faith in God's sovereignty and in the fact that he loved us and he gave himself up for us. That's the only way we can do it. The only way we can do it is by confessing that what we rightfully deserve is hell. Higher taxes are bad, but they're not as bad as hell. And what we rightfully deserve is hell. And when we say, what I rightfully deserve is eternal death, and what Christ has given me is his righteousness and eternal life, I will live for him and not for this world. And I will count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So this morning, we're going to take communion. And the purpose of communion is to remind us again and again and to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, to see him again, to understand it again. We need to hear the reality that Jesus died for us so that he can give us his perfect righteousness. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel so that we will see Christ and cherish him, cherish him more than we cherish anything that the world would offer us. And so that makes, that makes communion for believers. <laughs> it's for believers. Not for, if you're an unbeliever, this means nothing to you. If you're, if you're not saved, listen, don't take communion, right? If, your heart, if you discover that your heart doesn't actually love Jesus more than it loves the world, you need to be saved, friend. You need to be saved. Come to Christ. Confess your idolatry and be saved. But if you're here and you're a believer, this is for you. Communion is for us to remind us again and again and again of what Christ has done for us so that again and again and again we can count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing him. So I just want to appeal to you, maybe your heart is convicted this morning. What should you do with that? Take that to Christ. The sin that you've committed against him, take it to him and ask him to forgive you. And realize the glory of the forgiveness that he's granted to you. We've defamed Christ in the way that we've rebelled against authorities. And so we, want, we need his forgiveness. And his answer is yes, because he died on the cross for our sins. So go to him and repent and trust the finished work of Christ and his perfect righteousness for you. So what I want to do is invite the men and the band to come forward and what we're going to do is 
when they come forward, just stand up. If, if you're a Christian and your heart is clear before God, stand up, come forward. You can take the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll take communion all together. And obviously, as parents, please keep a watch over your children. And if they're not saved, you're not confident of that, just exercise authority over them. All right? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning aware of your sovereign hand over all things. Lord, there's nothing in heaven and on earth that you have not ordained. Lord, you have declared the end from the beginning, things which have not yet come to pass. Lord, you have declared those things that they will take place. And so, Lord, we need faith in that. Lord, we need to trust your sovereign hand over this world. We need to submit ourselves to you, Lord, and to reckon all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing your Son. Lord, so that we can have freedom in our hearts and our consciences to let go and to trust you so that we would be truly respectful from the heart to the authorities that you've placed over us. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would remind us of the gospel. Lord, remind us of what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, remind us of the glory of the forgiveness that you've granted to us. And Lord, fill our hearts with faith in these things. Lord, so that we will know your love for us, so that we will rest in your sovereign hand over us, and so that we will willingly, from the heart, honor you by our respect. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.